Welcome to the Teaching Council's Lighting a Fire podcast, the podcast where we discuss all things teaching and learning with a diversity of voices. My name is Tomás O'Rourke and I'm the Director and CEO of the Teaching Council here in Ireland. In this episode, we are revisiting Failsha 2021, where I was delighted to have a conversation with Roddy Doyle as our opening keynote speaker. Roddy is a former teacher, co-founder of the Fighting Words charity, and author of no less than 12 novels. If you have any comments or thoughts on this episode, you can find us on Twitter, at Teaching Council, or email us directly at communications at teachingcouncil.ie. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast in the usual way. You can find us on all major podcast platforms, and please enjoy. Welcome to Lighting a Fire. All things teaching and learning with the Teaching Council. Good morning to you all. You're all most welcome to Failture. I am delighted um, as a teacher, as a father, as a reader to be here on the main stage to welcome and introduce our keynote. It says speaker, but actually it's conversationist, I hope, Roddy. Uh, Roddy Doyle. Good morning to you, Roddy. Oh, how are you? Great to have you here. Roddy, when I was listening to your bio from the chairperson of the Teaching Council earlier on, and I expect if anybody stood back and listened to what all you've achieved over your career so far, it's absolutely incredible. Award-winning author as far back as the 90s. My, now my youngest daughter, Roisin, has one of your books, The Gigglers. Yeah. She's nine. I'm reading love at the moment, so across all ages, literally in terms of decades, people. But I'm going to start my first question with a childhood memory, if I can, because I've, my first encounter with your work was in 1992 in the Coliseum Cinema in Carlo. <laughs> and I was studying for the junior cert in third year, and I was getting stressed out over some project, whatever. And my mother gave me one of the best instructions she ever gave to me in my life. She said, go to this, get out there, don't get away from the books, just go off and do have a bit of fun, on your own. Mm-hmm. And as it happened, The Commitments was playing in the cinema that night. And I, rem- I can still see, as I talk to you now, walking out of the cinema on an absolute high. Even though, of course, the end of the film is kind of bittersweet and so on. Yeah. But it was incredible. It was just the singing. It was, it lost, I lost my imagination in the world created by you. Uh-huh. And we're talking about creativity later on. You and I have never met before. No. And we had no idea of each other back in 1992, that's for sure. And look at the impact you had in my life. So when you sit down to write... What drives you in that process? Why do you create stories? And I suppose, what are you hoping, if anything, will happen once your writing becomes a book, if your book becomes a film? What's your sense of it? Do you mean like today or yesterday when I was working as opposed to 30 years ago? Yeah. I really don't think about consequences at all. Um, I'm working on a novel, which I started some months ago, and I still don't know it really well. I don't know exactly what's going on. Little doors open now and again when I get to a sentence and I realise, ah, yeah, this, this is going to keep me going for a few days. This is, part, this is going to be part of the plot. And it's just, me and, it's just me and me, in a way. It's me, the writer, and me, the editor, looking over my shoulder and deciding how it's going, you know. So I don't really... Later on, when I'm finishing, it's all about clarity and making sure that, you know, that it's coherent, uh, Sometimes the plot isn't a straight line, and I want to make sure if it's not a straight line that it still makes sense uh, and makes, you know, really proper sense. And that uh, a big fixation with me at the moment really is that I'm writing at the moment, I think it's my 13th novel, and I've written, you know, lots of other things as well. And you would have thought it would get easier as you go along, but in many ways it gets harder because I try desperately not to repeat myself. And it really is awful when, you know, somebody points out, you used that character name before. (laughs) It's really terrible, you know. (laughs) So um, they're the things that uh, interest me when I'm working. I'm not really... uh, When it's finished, then I start thinking, I wonder how it's going to go down, you know, or who will be interested in it, you know. Uh, A lot of what I write now, one of the... The few compensations of getting older is that it's material, you know. So the the little humiliations of getting older, you know, you can use them to make the characters authentic. If you're writing about, I'm writing a lot about people in their 60s, 
Mm. Uh, a collection of short stories coming out next week, and mm. the, largely the characters are in during the pandemic in their 60s. And um, they're not all autobiographical in any sense, but I can use the feelings and the physical changes and all of this uh, as material, you know, as raw material to write. So in that way, it's, uh, it's, it's the only compensation to getting older, you know, but actually it's, there's a great energy in that because you'd think after years of working on my own that I'd run out of things to write about, but actually as you live, you gather up more material, you know. I'd never, ever have guessed even a year and a half ago that I'd have written eight short stories about living in a pandemic even a week before the pandemic started or even a month into it. It was only when I was looking around for something to write about I realised I can write short stories because that's the way life is at the moment. It seems to be a different short story every day. We were, we were becoming acquainted with new words that we'd never used before, new ways of life we'd never used before. You know, we were, hum, uh, you know, humming happy birthday twice as we washed our hands. <laughs> <laughs> Half convinced we were going to, you know, die by the end of the week, you know. And it was, uh, it's, it's almost comical now, despite, mm. um, but, and it's almost already a distant memory. But the way we were a year and a half ago was very different to the way we are now. And um, it, it changed by the time. So short stories seem to be ideal. So I think the long answer, you know, I've just given you, it's um, in, while I'm working, I don't interest myself too much in the world outside the, uh, you know, I'd never, I've never actually ever thought, you know, um, if I change the plot a bit, it might appeal to more people. Yeah. Or if I bring in a younger character, younger people might read my books. Yeah. Uh, I might go back, it might go back to the heydays of Paddy Clark and the Snapper. But uh, I never think in those terms at all. So luckily, luckily, because I think it would be quite depressing. But um, so I just think of what I'm doing, really. We were talking earlier on, you and I, about the, 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 the still emerging sense of energy from the COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. And... I was watching you in conversation with Irvin MacDonald a couple of weeks ago when you read the story Nurse from the collection mm-hmm. of short stories. And it was a very moving reading. I think you got kind of, you removed yourself yeah. as you were reading. And at the end, you said, I don't think I'll ever read that story in public again. Yeah. And I was reading some poetry recently and kind of had this thought about maybe hell are the stories we know, but we don't tell. Mm. We're going to bury them. If you were to put your finger on, as you seem to be doing in your short stories, but let's say for the audience watching here now, on the pulse of the nation as we're emerging from COVID, what would it tell you? Where do you think we're at right now, having gone through your exploration through those stories of, of the characters in COVID? Well, we're going... I don't know. I'm, I'm reluctant to make broad, sweeping statements. I think it's divided. You know, if we go back to March of last year, I think, in a way, this might sound a bit daft, but most of my life I've considered myself a Dubliner who happens to be Irish. And I kind of like, you know, I like being Irish. I've always have liked being Irish, really, particularly in the last couple of decades. But I've always felt myself primarily to be a Dubliner, you know. And um, I go out into the countryside now and again. Great <laughs> grow for Wexford for family reasons, you know. Yeah. But, you know, it looks nice. I'll admit that. Like, the, <laughs> The rest Beyond of the, the country pale. looks nice. But I do think as a group of people, uh, I think we kind of handled what was happening very well. Uh, there was a sense of we. There was a sense of community. Um, I think the government, which really, in retrospect, when I think about it, it's quite extraordinary. This was a group of people who, had, who weren't elected, if you like. It was just after a general election. It was the old government. There were people who, had, who hadn't been re-elected going into work every day. Mm. People whose politics I don't like, but I thought it was extraordinary. That, mm. And they were doing a great job, I think, in the early days. And there was a sense of, a sense of uh, equality insofar as the difference between public and private health disappeared for a while. Um, everybody was getting the same pandemic payment if, if you know uh, there was a sense of fairness about it all and things that were insolvable suddenly became solvable and uh, I think it's, it would be very hard to sustain that joyous almost energy it wasn't joyous, it was hysterical almost but mm-hmm. I think uh, broadly I think still um, 
we've come out the other end, or we are in a way coming out the other end and uh, holding it together, really, which is, I think, is quite, I think it's quite impressive and not not a little bit moving. But it has been a wretched time, and I think um, you you spoke about the stories we don't tell, and there's kind of. I, there's always a feeling, I think, sometimes that unless you have a big story, don't you know, yeah. don't talk. You know, if you haven't lost somebody close to you, yeah. don't talk. Yeah. And really, I think sometimes the power of the little stories is uh, is just as important. You know, there's, I've one story about a man who's utterly alone. You know, and the whole routine of his life has, uh, the, if you like, the scaffolding that holds his life together, the routine of going to work, work, coming home, is gone, mm-hmm. and all he can do is walk. And uh, he, 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 uh, it's kind of inspired by uh, a, a man I saw walking myself when I was out walking with my dogs in Clontarf and walking a lot more than I've ever walked in my life. And the poor mm. old dogs, like, <laughs> hiding, <laughs> hiding behind the fridge, like, <laughs> you know, trying to demolish the leaves so that I wouldn't actually drag them off on a walk. But this guy, there was a frantic, he may have been perfectly okay, but to my eyes, there was a kind of frantic energy to him, you know, and I felt... And he always seemed to be by himself, you know, and I just thought, you know, there's something going on there. So I wrote this story. Mm-hmm. And actually, he opens up in a way at the end of the story, which um, I hadn't been anticipating when I started it. So it's the little things, I think, that fill my creative energy, really, that give me creative energy. Obviously, big events are vital, and you know, but um, it's sometimes the smaller, the little smaller details that, uh, that interest me. Your reference to the dogs reminded me there was a meme going around on social media of a dog looking at its owner. Yeah. And the dog is saying, listen, Linda, I don't understand. I'm just a bleeding dog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. The New Yorker did a great dog. <laughs> exactly. Dogs are, but, um, and I've, you know, I've had dogs in my children's books, but it's, um, it is amazing, I think, as well. as it, it's an, When I was a kid, the dogs were called Rover and things like that. Mm. Now they've got human names. Yes. You know? <laughs> And they're getting that bit closer, closer to controlling the remote control when, when the telly's on. That would happen in my household now, Roddy. <laughs> so, yeah. And it's no longer, you know, I'm, I'm in that zone myself. It's no longer the dog. It's the dogs. Yes. You know, it's more and more common to see people walking their dogs as opposed yeah. to just the one. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 your, your, your thing about the little stories is really powerful in, in, in an almost paradoxical way. And... Came across a section the the novel Love, where I think David is talking about certain moments, cheek by jowl with each other, he, he forgets, and other ones he remembers very clearly. Mm. What do you think you remember from COVID in your own? What are your little stories from COVID? What would you remember, and what do you think we should perhaps forget from COVID? I wouldn't encourage anybody to ever forget anything, to be honest with you. Okay. you know, give it a context and maybe put it on the proper shelf, but never forget. I think... Problems start when we forget, you know, or try to forget or decide we've forgotten. Because in a way, you know the whole idea of forgiven and forgotten. Mm. Forgiven is one thing, forgetting is another thing. Mm. You know, it mm. shouldn't be, they, they don't go hand in hand. No. So um, I wouldn't be forgetting anything. And I'm not sure if there's any key moment or any big thing. I do remember it was almost like a bad film in some ways, watching uh, Leo Varadkar on, on, on um, St. Patrick's Day, wasn't it, when he made the speech? Yes. And again, I don't like the man's politics, but he was very, very impressive. But I realised when I was watching it in this old-fashioned way, almost like a Roosevelt, you know, fireside chat type of thing, and uh, you know, I wasn't watching it alone. And it's, you know, the way a lot of us now, we watch telly alone, you know, mm. we watch these things on our phones or on our iPads, we watch alone. And it was, I realized I was, it, was, it just felt like, almost like being back at home in my childhood home in 1960, something or other, where we all watched the same thing at the same time because we, you know, there was no choice. Um, and this, it was something really unifying about it almost. And um, it was a, if you like, it was a good start to an awful period of time, mm. in a way. That, so that, in a way, is what I take away. And the, um, the, the the groups of people walking, walking, walking. And I thought the attempts to stay in touch. You know, I live near the sea, so the the sudden surge of people getting into the water, 
you know, and then immediately it becomes comical because they're talking about sea swimming. <laughs> as if to give it a, you know, what else? It is the sea. And then I think one or two people started referring to it as wild swimming. <laughs> You know, you're only going for a swim. Calm down. Swim you know. is a swim. It's only the Irish Sea. <laughs> They're not, you know, and um, so it, it has a comical side to it, you know. And I even, I, you know, when, when we went from two kilometres to five kilometres, I went and bought a bike, you know. <laughs> I haven't had a bike in 20 odd years, but mm. I bought a bike, and you realise very quickly you're not the only one. You know, <laughs> that there's, a, there's a lot of owl lads out there on bikes. And I met a friend of mine, and he's, he was doing really well. He, he, like, he was um, doing really well on the bike, and he did, no, there's a little motor in it. <laughs> that, a discreet motor. You know? So when he's going up an incline, he can switch on the motor yes. and still pretend he's psyched. <laughs> you know? And I was, you know, laboriously going up the hill towards home, and he was scooting past me. <laughs> the, the, I remember that night very vividly as well, when the Dan Taoiseach spoke even though it was the middle of March, it, there was a sense of darkness in the room. Now, it was late in the evening, yeah, obviously, yeah. but it just there was a whole sense of, of that pathetic fallacy yeah. about the whole thing. It really was extraordinary. Yeah, and I had actually, the previous week I'd been in the UK, you know, so when things were closing, the schools were closing and other things were closing here, and obviously the lights, you know, if you like, the plugs were being pulled out. It wasn't happening in the UK, and I felt suddenly, even though, you know, I'd been in and out of the UK so regularly over the last 25 years, and it's just, I don't even, at that point, I didn't even think about going out to the airport. It was so habitual in a way, yeah, yeah. you know, that, and this, I suddenly felt really far from home. And the hotel I was in, there was a stag do going on downstairs. Bunch of lads, about 60 lads in Hawaii Five O shirts, and it just felt so... Uh, I don't know, alien almost, and sort of suddenly dangerous, something that normally I would say, oh, that's, that looks great, I wouldn't mind joining them. But it, it just looked dangerous, you know, and um, it was party central in Newcastle-upon-Tyne where I was, you know, it was just stag and hen. Yeah. And yet I was looking at images from Ireland and, you know, the, the tape was going up, the, the yellow and black tape was going yeah, up and yeah, yeah. messages were going up and yet there wasn't a sign of this stuff in, um, in the UK. So when I got home... Uh, I thought it was going to be typhoid Mary bringing the disease into the country. I really felt, you know, I hope they let me in almost. And I, uh, I hung up my coat and I didn't go near it for months because I thought, you know, it's infected. I'll leave it alone. And luckily yes. the weather was brilliant, if you remember. Yes. So, but it was a, a strange. And I think as a writer, it was actually, it worked out well for me because I was aware of how different it was when I got home. You know, and I was very conscious that, I think we were all worried about inhaling and exhaling, which is um, such a strange experience. I remember once being at the traffic lights and I didn't want to touch the button yeah. with my finger, you know, and you're going like that at the yeah. button and trying to actually, with my dogs, trying to hold the dog's <laughs> leaves and go like that. Yeah. And using, you know, using your body in a way that you've never used it before, in a way. So everything, in a way, changed. But again, it's... Um, as a writer, you get, you know, well, this is material. This is possible material for writing, you know? You talked about being far from home, and my impression at the early stages of COVID was we were all too near to home. We were locked into oh, yeah. our home spaces, yeah. and you're the thing of the anxiety of breathing the air around you. And then I remember in the early stages of going on all those walks, I was one of those soldiers yeah, too. Yeah. And then it's someone approaching the, on, the, on the same path, the opposite direction. How far out do you step? Is that being rude to them? You know, yeah. This, Stepping around, it was yeah, the whole slaloming thing, you yeah, know, walking sideways almost, you know, yeah. Which, luckily, again, I think because of the weather, it was easy enough. But when the weather, like January, February of this year, when it was really kind of wet and and getting, you know, the, the daylight is so, you know, they're actually getting around people, and it was really kind of challenging, and yeah. you know, it, it uh, yeah, it's a strange one because it goes in many, many ways. It goes against you know, where we're drawn to people. In this case, we were being repulsed from yes. people uh, for, for logical reasons, but it felt more than logic, you know. It was kind of an emotional thing that was just... You end up somehow or other, that complicated thing, craving company, but actually craving the opposite as well, you know. At the same time? Yeah. People as a threat, you know. And I've never really felt crowds of people as a threat before, you know. Uh, so it was a strange one, but I suppose at the moment things are getting back to some sort of, not some sort of normal. 
They seem to be. Uh, you also spoke, I think, at that interview with Derville about there was a novel you were in the middle of drafting, if I remember correctly, just before COVID hit. Mm. And you won't finish it now, that the world had changed so much. Yeah. So that sense in which we are returning to anormal, but it's going to be quite different as well, isn't it? Yeah. That, that in a well, it always will be. I think people, I think maybe very young people may think, may not think in terms of pre and post COVID, but I think the rest of us will be thinking of pre and post. A little bit, I suppose, it might be the same with people who went through the war, you know, the Second World War or yeah. any sort of war pre and post. Yeah. And uh, I think that's the way we will be for the rest of, uh, you know, it's certainly people of my age and probably much younger will be thinking that way, you know. Do you remember what it used to be like oh, before? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see what goes back to the way it was and what doesn't, you know. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of, there's an, already kind of an economic struggle and a cultural struggle about, you know, whether to go to work or work from home, whether to, um, whether there's a hybrid available, whether, you know, living the dream down in the country. Um, and some of the people you hear on the radio, they obviously, they have, they have skin in the game, so to speak. Yes, you know? yes, yes, yes. So they're marketing, yeah. you know, and I think things will calm down eventually and we'll, we'll see how it goes. But, um, uh, it's a, 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 to me, I would think it's, 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 it's not a great time to be making big decisions. I think we're still holding our breath. Haven't been afraid of our breath for so long. Yes. Well, there you go, yeah. You... Um you spoke about that moment with, with the Taoiseach, and I remember it was one of those rare moments where He's you could, tarnished, that moment. Tarnished, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he is now. Yeah. He is now. Um, where, for a rare moment, in contrast to that kind of uh, fragmentation of you know, devices, iPads and so on, you could say that entire nation was pretty much all watching the same thing. Seemed like that, yes. And then we were kind of afraid of each other, afraid of ourselves for, for those period of time. And I was reflecting on... The, the sense which social media has almost dialed down the banal ways of engaging. That, I mean, you, you wrote that column of the two pints, for example, and all the rest, and mm. now that's the backdrop to, to your novel. Whereas we seem to be so much focused on the, the pizzazz, the superlative space of social media. It must be a wow picture. It must be this, must be mm. that, because it's so fragmented, because we're not in the same mm. channel anymore. Where, in that space, given the whole thing of you know, creative writing, reading, you, you create, obviously hoping people will read it, where are we at in terms of our ability to relate to each other? Has that been damaged, you think, Roddy, by the pandemic that we're so, even more fragmented than we used to be? Or? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I have a Facebook account. I'm not overly active on it. Uh, but I, 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 I've no curiosity about Twitter. Or, you know. and I remember there was, somebody told me, uh, there's people digging into you on Twitter. Mm. And I wasn't even curious. I, I, grand. I didn't care. You know, it's just if you, <laughs> you know, if you don't see it. Yeah. So I'm not curious about that aspect of it. And um, I suppose, again, it, it's, it's not right to reach sweeping conclusions about the way we live now. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had, you know, I've been in Zoom meetings and, you know, as, a, as the chair of Fighting Words, our... our our, our board meetings now for the last year and a half have been on Zoom and it's certainly it's a lot better than nothing. Yeah. That's about as much as I'd say about it. I think at another level in my work, if I had a meeting in London, for example, and it, the meeting lasts an hour or an hour and a half, it makes more sense to have it on Zoom rather than Correct. either me go to London or somebody come here and, you know, so in, in some ways could be seen as a waste of a day, you know. Yeah. So you can see the compensations of it. But actually, I don't know... What I can say about, I mean, I do know that personally, uh, going to a football match and being among a group of several thousand people was a hugely emotional experience. And I've gone to football matches all my life in packed stadiums and in empty stadiums. And this time around, it just felt more important to me, much more important to the extent that. I would, you know, half hope that my dying breath is jumping up out of a seat to celebrate a goal being scored. Because these are people I don't know, you know, or with one friend or one family member. Yeah. But it just seemed it was vital to be back in that sort of, if only for an hour and a half, back in that sort of uh, social context, you know, to be sharing the joy 
and the agony of uh, a football match with other people seemed really important. Watching it on telly is better than nothing, a lot better than nothing, but yeah. it's not the same experience at all. And I think it's the same with watching a play that's being produced live on a screen is yeah. not the same as going. When somebody says something funny on a stage, there's nothing quite like being in the audience and laughing with other people. Or maybe not laughing and wondering why they're laughing. Yes. You know, being yeah. able to respond, rather than being at home watching it on your own. So I think the drift back into uh, ourselves as social beings, uh, quite a bit surprising, it seems quite tentative. Even though we have permission to go places and do things now, um, I was in a pub last night, you know, Friday night in the centre of Dublin. No problem getting a seat. <laughs> but two years ago, you'd need a machete to get in the door. <laughs> or the threat of a machete, at the very least, to get in the Speak door. Speak for yourself, no, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I never go out without my machete, you know, especially these days. <laughs> so, again, it seems almost I wouldn't have expected that. that I, you know, in a way, I was thinking, oh, they'd be charging into the pubs. But, you know, no, it's very slowly it's interesting it's really interesting it's hard to you know it's hard to capture in a way you said earlier on um we seem to have discovered not uniquely but maybe rarely as a, as a nation there is such a thing uh, as we oh yeah and i'm really struck i said this earlier on that I mean, for all the kind of the stereotypes of irish culture if you predicted even in the february of last year that the pubs would be shut for 18 months mm. in the interest of a greater good people would have laughed at you it, uh, it's extraordinary how we've kind of you know, been able to pull together to actually buy into those decisions. You say we're drifting back in a tentative way. So yeah. even though the official restrictions are saying you can do this, that, the yeah. other, you don't need a machete to get into a pub at the moment kind no. of thing. So it's, our well, collective yeah, it's mindset a, is interesting. Yes, it is. And I mean, it, 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 it nibbles away at the cliche about us, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and I think there's always that, always that urge to, to kowtow to the, stereotype, you know, laugh about ourselves as boozers and things like that, which we're not. But I think, like myself, a lot of people would have reached the conclusion during the early days of the lockdown, it's not the alcohol I miss, it's the company. Yeah. That's why I go to the pub. Yeah. You know, and people could say, oh, you could meet your friends in your houses. Like, men of my generation, we don't go into each other's houses. Like, and I'm saying that with a certain amount of pride. We don't <laughs> care about each other's houses. We couldn't give a toss, you know. My closest friend, I was in his house, I think, 15 years ago. I walked by it quite a lot, but I couldn't care less if I never go into it. We meet in the pub, yeah. you know. And we're, we're, that's our natural habitat. And it, I, I realise, yeah, it's, I don't... You know, it's for Thursday evening. I don't crave a pint, but I do crave a chat, you know. And I think that may be the conclusion a lot of people reached, you know. And um, that's what makes the pub such a great place, you know. Um, and yet, as you say, yeah, the, most, most of the pubs were shut down for a year and a half. Um, a lot of obsessive stuff about, you know, the, this, this attempt to uh, simplify life to the extent that it's all about the pubs opening. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. You know, and of course it's not. No, no, no. Yeah. You talk about craving company, not the alcohol, and I might use that as a segue into the whole uh, teaching space, if that's okay, because it seems to me, and you have your own view, I'm sure, as well, but that you've come full circle in terms of you, you left uh, teaching 28 years ago, but with the fighting words you're bringing a whole new angle. And I remember you commented to Dervin MacDonald, actually, that you were kind of almost incredulous when you're presenting the inspectorate conference on fighting words. Yeah. So here's a man who says, you know, writers, the last thing a writer should be is respectable. Yeah. And you're standing in front of the inspectors of the country and saying fighting words and how it works. Yeah. Talk to me in the, in the first instance, Roddy, about your background as a teacher and how you say it's to this day, it still kind of informs mm. your thinking. Tell us about that, please. Well, in a way, I drifted into it. Uh, I had got a, a degree from UCD, and one of the options, of course, was the HDIP, which was a year back then. You did a bit of teaching practice in the mornings, and then you were supposed to go to the lectures in the afternoon. And um, my own schooling, great, great experience in primary school, Scholasim in Rohini, didn't like the secondary school. I went to Christian Brothers when there were Christian Brothers. It was a strange place, strange contrast to primary school. Uh, talking to a friend of mine who we met when we were 
13, put sitting beside each other in Latin, and we were talking to each other on Thursday, both agreeing it was a bit of a kip, but actually it was brilliant in many ways because you're in the back of the room and there's nothing, there's nothing to cement a friendship hmm. than forbidden laughter, <laughs> you know. Do you know what I mean? That if yes. you're caught laughing, you are dead, basically. <laughs> and we were both laughing. We, had one, we were talking about the teachers that we really... It's, we rarely talk about the past, but I think we both realised a few weeks ago that we'd met 50 years before. 50 years before, yeah. So we've been kind of friends since then. And we were both going through the teachers thinking, you know, great teacher, great teacher, nice man, great, yeah. yeah. And there was um, one teacher, he was really good, Brother Martin. Uh, and uh, he hit us both on the back of the head with the complete works of Shakespeare. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> we were saying, yeah, we realised just how much Shakespeare had written. Yeah. <laughs> it was a substantial book. And he used to carry it in the soutane. He had some pocket, you know, huge, capacious, is that the word? Yeah, yeah. Huge pocket in his soutane. The complete he'd, works. He'd haul out the complete works of Shakespeare, yeah. <laughs> uh, he was, we'd only be reading. Trying to teach by his Moses. You know. <laughs> But yeah, you got it back in the head. I'll never forget it, you know. You just lose contact with yourself. But, um, you know, which it would now be illegal, quite yeah, right. of course, but, yeah. you know, luckily I can consign that one to comedy, you know. Yeah, anyway. yeah. But, and he was a good teacher. But um, anyway, I, 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 there was a new community school around the corner from where I grew up. It wasn't there. It was a field. It was a farm when I was a kid, you know. But it was there, and I went around and asked for HDIP hours, Greendale Community School. And um, I liked the sound of it. It was co-ed, multi-denominational, um, wasn't named after a saint. <laughs> you know, the, only, the, only, the only school in Ireland that wasn't named after a saint. And uh, I went in. You know, I actually was working in London that summer, uh, road sweeping. And I went in, and if I remember right, got off the ferry, went home, had a shower, went up to the school for the first staff meeting. And uh, then the day after, um, the, vice, the vice principal came up to me with a list of somebody, some teacher was ill and couldn't come in, and would I take the classes? And I had a list of classes. And I had to do metalwork, religion, home economics, you know, it was yeah. a whole... Yeah. And I went in, and basically I was looking after the kids and whatever, but I thought this was brilliant. I, I, and I didn't anticipate it. And the class sizes were so big. You know, there, there was a, the term remedial was used in those days. This is 1979. Mm. Mm. So there was a remedial class with 37 kids in it, you know. And um, they were brilliant. They were just brilliant. I mean, brilliant. Uh, they were lovely kids. There was a certain madness in the room, granted, but again, it was, it was, there's a, ni- you know, a nice madness. They were lovely kids. They were curious. They were very, very funny. And I think broadly in the first year, that HDIP year and the year afterwards when I started teaching full-time in the same school, luckily enough, I think I made it clear that I liked them. Mm. Couldn't help it. Mm. You know, they made me laugh. Mm. They made me listen. Uh, and it was really, it was like also they put, they put body on my politics, you know, abstract ideas about fairness and equality. I was looking at them, you know, mm. and rooting for them and realising really quickly it was a great adventure, that school. I mean, it was bang in the middle of a new estate and these kids, a lot of them, the ones that were staying on, this is the early 80s now we're talking about, the ones that were staying on for the Leaving Cert, this was the, these were pioneers. Yeah. And their parents were very aware of that. So it was a brilliant time I use the word brilliant a lot in my life, you know, it's, it's a key word for me. But it was a brilliant time to be there, you know, young staff as well, brilliant energy. But the kids were just fantastic. And I read years later that a good teacher, and I'm not claiming to have been one now, but a good teacher goes into a room thinking that he or she is going to learn something today. And I thought, yeah, actually, that's... I'm glad I wasn't t- conscious of that thought at the time. Yeah. Because you'd come out some days thinking, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't <laughs> learn I? an awful lot today. <laughs> I learned that my tolerance levels are getting pretty, <laughs> getting pretty dicey, you know. So, uh, but I just thought it's a great, it's a great, if you like, attitude. And actually, it's a very wise thing to think. 
that these two kids would teach you something every day. And I think in many ways, yeah, that was the case. But I just, I felt, you know, I look back and it was really the making of me, you know, um, the teaching. I still cherish it. You started your creative writing and then the novels and so on while you were still teaching. Yeah, very that soon. Must been, that must have been pretty tough. No, think. not really. No, no, no because um, just to remind you, June, July, August. <laughs> yes, okay. <you> know? <laughs> <laughs> That's a quarter of the year. You know? I don't want to overstress it. And I do think, actually, it is a good idea to let children do other things, you know. So yeah. I was never, even when I stopped teaching, I, I, nothing but contempt for the whole idea of shortening the holidays. You know, I do think they're precious. Yeah. And if they oh, in Finland, they only get, you know, two hours holidays. You know, it's always some Nordic Yes, yes, comparison. And some Nordic paradise. <laughs> we watch Nordy, Nordy noir stuff where they're killing one another. Towns of 27. Once a week, there's another one dead. And yet at the same time, when it comes to examples of education and the rest, oh, and, you know, in Iceland, <laughs> you know, so, uh, but, um, so the first, what I did was I went to London in the summer of 1982 and I stayed there for the whole of the summer holidays. And I found a bed sit and I went to the local library and I wrote a bit every day and gradually started. It became a novel, a novel that was never published because it's not very good. But okay. I think um, it got me into the routine. Mm. And then when I came back to school to teach, I didn't have a family at the time. My life was very, very simple. You know, I was in a bed sit myself in Dublin and I would, if I had a lot of prep, you know, as an English teacher, there's an awful lot of correcting and mm. preparation involved or whatever. I tried to get it done before I left the building and then I'd, you know, do a bit at home. Mm. Uh, and I kind of became, I, I realised, and I think it's probably if ever, if ever, I, I, you know, it's, I, I, you could call it cop on or if you like, a realisation that actually a huge part of the writer's job is um, it's just discipline, self-discipline, a willingness to make the time to sit and do the writing, you know, rather than thinking, oh, when I, when I have a bit of free time, I'll, yeah. you know, trying to... And it, actually, at that time, it was easy enough because I didn't have the complications of family life at the time. Mm. And by the time I did... I was up and running, if you like. I had books published. I had deadlines to meet with film scripts and things like that. So I had to make the time. And actually, I suppose my most, if you like, the book that at the time I was most famous for, Paddy Clark, ha, 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 it's structured. It's a book that was written by a man who had very little spare time. And the reason why it's structured that way and there are little incidents in it and, you know, longer chapters and short ones that yeah. very often the little chapter was written because I didn't have any time. I wrote for half an hour before going to bed or I wrote for 20 minutes before going to work. I was still teaching full time and I had a, a baby and then two babies in the house, you know, so it was really... And um, sometimes if I could, you know, if we had a copy of the book, I'd show you a little passage and I'd say, I wrote that when both of the children were asleep at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> where that perfect... They asleep and the kids are asleep, yeah, but you kept writing. <laughs> rare moment where they both... Coincide. You know, both, yeah, they were both conked out at the same time. And I was able to get into my office and do a tiny bit of work there. So actually, the pressures of my life at that time became... A good thing, a virtue almost, uh, and, and created a book that uh, broke, the, broke the methods of my previous books, broke the whole structures. My previous books were all a straight line, you know, young, young bunch of kids form a band, the band has a career and it breaks up. Young woman announces she's pregnant, then has the baby. You know, so they were a straight line, whereas Paddy Clark isn't at all. And I was trying to capture the, the, the mind of a 10-year-old who, you know, never differentiates between what's important and what's trivial. It's all important. So, in a way, because I had so little time, because I was teaching full-time uh, and then trying to be a father, um, it became the, the, the fuel that created that book, in a way. When you were talking about the, and I remember we talked about this before, and I was very surprised by that, the extent of the discipline. When I talked to you last week, you were in your office, you were upstairs, and mm. you work in the morning and so on. That would contrast with a lot of the stereotypical image many people may have of the creative person, whereby yeah. there's the easel in hand, and when the mood takes, you just splash paint and you yeah. whatever. 
but there's a real discipline to, to, to the art yeah. of creativity from what, what you're saying. Yeah, well, certainly, there is, I, I, yeah, there has to be. I mean, I, I, I don't observe other people working, you know, so I, I can't speak on behalf of other artists. I don't know. To be honest, I'm a, I, I'm a huge admiration for poets, for the simple reason, I have no idea how they do it. You know, that I can measure my day according... If I, if I write a thousand words, if I'm working on a novel, if I write a thousand words, that's a really good day's work. Okay. It doesn't matter if they're any good, and it doesn't matter if I come back later and delete them all, or most of them. It doesn't matter. It's a, it's a good day's work. Whereas I have no idea how a poet can measure their day, or how they can sit and write a couplet and come downstairs, like, I'm, I'm imagining myself, because I work in the attic, so yeah. I come downstairs thinking, that was a good day's work, you know, yeah. I can't actually, so I admire that, because it's beyond me, you know, I'll never do it, yeah. but, so I've no idea how, how uh, artists, visual artists measure their work, the working day, I don't know, but I can only refer to myself, and I think I made up my rules that made life as, not as easy, but as doable as possible for myself, in terms of, the goals I would set myself for a day, um, how I uh, structure the day, how I um, don't work weekends, how I take good holidays, and um, I always make sure there's something in my diary beyond just going upstairs to, to the office to work. And um, I, uh, just when I start a novel, for example, or even a short story, but particularly a novel, I measure quantity, first of all, until I have enough of it built up before I start looking at the quality. Because if I think if I look at the quality too early, it, it's a barrier. It's like, um, visually, it's like almost training for the hurdles. And then mm. you get over the second hurdle, but somebody's put one too soon. Yes, and it literally breaks your rhythm and you fall, yeah. you know. So I think if, you, if I, if I uh, focus on quality too early, I'm putting extra hurdles in my way, and why would I do that? Mm, mm. And at, at this stage of my life, I can see why I wouldn't do that, but I actually saw that 35 years ago. You know, I saw that, that if I'm going to do this, I have to be able to... I was writing in copy books, you know. So if I have two hours in the evening... If I can fill three, three pages, that'll satisfy me. But I, I just have to sit and do that. And say if there was a, something on the telly, a football match on the telly or something, I'd say, well, I'll see if I can get this done before the match. You know, not deny myself the match or not deny myself, you know, the early 80s when I was um, writing, I was a very young man, you know, and there was these glorious gigs, you know. Uh, I've seen so many great, great bands, the Smiths and the Clash and... The Ramones, you know, legendary bands at this stage. And uh, I saw them all, but I still was writing at the same time. So I was teaching, going home, doing a bit of work, going to a gig, you know. And, um, but uh, the, a lot of writers, a lot of writers are teachers. It's, uh, mm. it, it's not coincidence because the teaching is a very intense job, very, very exhausting. But there are those gaps, you know. And particularly in my early life, the gaps were there to be filled, you know. And I was talking about gaps of time, but there's also gaps in terms of where the kids are at, where you're at. We talked about the kids putting body on your politics. Mm. The, you know, the, the, the gap, we often, the, the creative urge to fill those gaps. And when you mentioned earlier on about you'd be allergic to any notion of reducing the holidays because we need that free space. And I was in a poetry group during the summer and there was a former student of yours, as it happened, I told them I was going to be interviewing you later in the year. And she'd greatly say about you, by the way, and she's over in Germany. And she <laughs> you had me worried for a minute. I know, yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> and she recalled very fast. She said, Roddy, I talked to Roddy, I said, yeah. She said, I was in, in his class for geography, I think it was. And he, he took them out, she said, to civic spaces in the city. Mm -hmm. And just, he made the learning real. Mm. How I, don't, I don't remember that. Oh, uh, well, she remembered that very well, actually. She, she, she smiled, and you know what that, kind of, that, that air comes over someone, they look back yeah. in those happy times. How good are we, or are we not, Roddy, do you think, in terms of integrating more and more the creative, the outdoor, with the kind of the more mainstream indoor? The gap between life outside school and life in school seems to me to be bizarre, you know, we love the creativity of ourselves as a people. We glory in it. We have the T-shirts. We have the tea towels. We're marketing ourselves as being writers and the rest. But when it comes to this insistence on measurement in the class, I think that's where it all falls apart. It's a bizarre thing that, you know, one of my children was discouraged from writing a short story for 
the leaving cert, I think, as an option, or maybe the junior cert, I'm not yeah, sure, yeah. because it's, it's less predictable. Go for the essay because that's easier to measure. And that seems perverse. It really, as a culture, it just seems perverse. So I think, to my mind, one of the good things about the pandemic is that it introduced the possibility of a successful education without there being the leave insert as it was at the very end of it. Because at the moment, if you go, say, well, at the moment, it's up for grabs in a way, but mm. you go back two years, it's as if everything that comes up, everything before those two weeks in June of your final year mean nothing mm. except a build-up to doing this exam. At a human level, none of us wants that, but there seems to be... It's like education is almost real estate, mm. you know? Mm. And the value is... It, it, it's, it, its value is measured in such a limited way that so many people are unappreciated. I, it's my conver- firm conviction that everybody is intelligent. Everybody. I've never met anybody who... I've met a few people who've wobbled that assertion, shall we say. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, they've left me wondering. You've been learning, you've been learning, <laughs> right? There have been very few. Everybody is intelligent, we all have our skills, but the education system in the country at the moment only measures a very, very few of those skills. And bizarrely, it seems that those skills are owned by a certain class of people. Mm-hmm. You know? So I think it's fascinating and it's encouraging that you know, we could get through the year and a half that there's been, you know, a hybrid leaving cert, there's been no leaving cert at all, there's been hysteria on the radio and yet it's, it's still up and running, it's still moving along. And I think one of the challenges, I don't, you know, I, I feel reluctant to be too loud about it because I'm not a teacher, but one of the challenges is to see if we can keep pushing what... I, I heard somebody on the radio saying about a year ago, maybe a year, you know, more than a year ago, since the foundation of the state, every student has been given the opportunity to sit the leave insert. And I thought, what? <laughs> the opportunity? <laughs> it's not the opportunity to go and see, you know, whatever the, the big band is in the moment. The opportunity to go away to Berlin for a few <laughs> days. Yeah, the opportunity to sit the leave insert. I mean, uh, you know, so... It's really, it's been like the other things that, you know, these solid things in, in Irish life that have been rattled and it, it, mm. it's a healthy thing. Mm. The whole idea that the leaving cert, and you know, I remember trying to explain to somebody why the fact that Yates came up on the leaving cert paper was the second item on the national news. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> <laughs> when, you know, when you've seen the news in other countries, when you're sitting in a hotel room or whatever and you're looking at the news and yet you go home and the second item on the news after, you know, the collapse of the mm. global economy is Yates it's... came up and you've got these kids, oh, I'm glad Yates came up. <laughs> Why should we give a shite that Yates came up unless we were sitting to leave and start? So I think... I can't remember your original question. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the rant. But I do think it's up for grabs. Creativity, and I know from experience, Mm. so I am something of an expert here. Mm. You go into a creative endeavour not knowing what you're doing. You know? It's vital that you know, that that's a thing you know, that you're open to that openness, if you like. You're open to the fact that you don't know what you're doing. You may have half a plot in your head, but that is not why people are going to read your book or watch your film or whatever. It, it, there are other things. That, so real creativity, if you tell a kid that they must know how the story is going to end before they start it, that is like on a football field, showing the kids a football, enticing them with the football, but saying you can't have the football until you've learned the rules, the offside rule. Yeah. And recite it to me, then I'll give you the... I never understood that rule, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still trying to figure it out. The offside rule is, you know, it is vital to, you know, a real game of football, but the idea of not allowing a kid kick a ball before they can... You know, so it's the same. Why, you know... And another analogy I use, you, you encounter somebody who you really like, you know, in your early life, or if you're, maybe if you, it doesn't matter what age you are, a man, a woman, whatever, you meet them, and you really, really like them, and you really think, I might like to spend a lot of time in this person's company. Are you going to insist that you know what they're like in 40 years' time before you commit <laughs> yourself? It doesn't work that way. You live oh, through... Oh, now it. I get it. <laughs> if all, you know... <laughs> I need to start all over again, Roddy. <laughs> 
Well, I remember my father saying, have you seen, <laughs> have you seen any pictures of her ma? But, <laughs> that was the, near he, the nearest he oh, gave me as a piece of advice. But, um, so you go into this not knowing what you're doing, you know. The leave insert can't allow that. That idea, you know, you have to have it finished by a certain time. You can only have three hours to write a short story. You have to do this, you have to do that. And it has to be measurable. We have to give it a grade. So, in a way, in the current circumstances, creativity is worthless. Mm. It's worthless in the education system as traditional, you know. So, it ha we, we have to get past the whole idea of that strict measurement and the whole idea that it may be objective, but that's not enough. It's still not fair, you know. So, creativity... What we do at Fighting Words is that we yeah. allow the kids to sit and make up their own stories. And we tell them, not, well, don't worry if there isn't an ending. You'll, as you write, it'll come to you. Yep. Something will come to you. Don't worry about consequences. You can, you can write the first draft, the second draft, the third draft. The exam system and most schools don't allow for second draft, third draft. Mopping up, changing your mind, uh, making it clearer flinging it in the bin and starting again. Yeah. These are all vital components of the creative life, you know. And um, uh, so I think if, if we can... And, and a, a thing about it as well, that, and I know from experience as well, having, you know, spoken to so many teachers since Fighting Words opened in 2009, that um, there's an anxiety about it, about uh, the freedom. Of it, where what should be in a way a joy, and at some of them, when they watch the kids working on their own work, it's a revelation because they, you know, I've, I've never known he could do that. I've never. Uh, why don't they know? What, what's what's stopping us, Roddy, from discovering that? Do you think? Well, in part, again, I don't want to uh, be too insistent on it. Yeah. I suppose, in part, you know, that's, uh, my memory, you know. You can be as you know you can be as um, free spirited a teacher as you want, but there are that, there is that time when you realise you're a machine that's producing exam results, you know, and that's the responsibility is there, you know, all the time, and um, I think it's it's a loosening in part. What we do is that, and again, hopefully it'll happen again soon, is that the kids come out of the school, so it's a bit of an adventure. They come to us or yeah. some venue in Galway or Cork. Yeah. Dublin, they come to us. So it's a bit of an adventure. Uh, so there's that. Mm. We encourage the teacher to stay at the side, not to go around looking over the shoulder, you know. And, and, and they, some of them, are, they get it. Some yeah. They're a bit anxious. Um, and then we just encourage the kids to write what they want. Don't worry about it. Can I do that? Yeah, you can. Later on, for example, if it's something that's going to be published, we'll tell them now, this is going to be read by your parents and they're going to buy copies and send it off to your family in Australia and America. It's going to be, you know, the launch is going to be in your school. Is there anything you want to look at or talk about or change perhaps? Mm. But they know, you know, say a transition year group, they know quite quickly they can write about things that worry them. They can write about things that, strictly speaking, uh, isn't the world of the school. They can write honest things in a way. They don't have to uh, write to a model. And it's extraordinary um, the work that you see being produced by uh, these kids. It's just, it's just brilliant. And they take responsibility for it. And one of the things I've learned, for example, is that um, you automatically now, if you've got a character living in the present day, he or she has a phone. You know, mm. and they walk around with the phone. That's mm. the fact of it mm. now. Mm. You know, and it's a pain in the neck. I can see the attraction, for example, when you see a lot of crime stuff that's set in the past. I can see the attraction of that because it eliminates all that knowledge. You know, all that. Mm. If, if I was writing the commitments today, it'd be a bigger challenge because the whole tension about whether Deco, the singer, is going to turn up tonight, they'd know. They, yes, yes. He's getting yes, off the bus. Yes, they'd yeah. know. They'd have him spotted. Who's Joy the Lips with now? Yeah. <laughs> Or the snapper. You yeah. know, there's a lot I'd have to rewrite if the snapper was set today. Yeah. But one of the things I'd have to... Sharon says, for example, that um, uh, it wasn't Mr. Burgess. He's not the dad. It was a Spanish sailor. It would be much harder for her to get away with that story now because there'd be so much of her life up on Instagram or on right. Facebook and people are like, don't see the sailor. Where will... You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. she could do it, 
it could still be done. Now, there are other things that I'd change, and, you know, if, not now. Yeah. And the book is, inta- you know, is intact, yeah. and it's, I'm very happy with it. But if I was setting it today, there's a lot I'd have to change. And I think watching these kids accommodate text, and my worry at first was that it would all be text. Yeah. I, I can't imagine sitting through pages and pages of text. Yeah. But actually, nor could they. They didn't like it either. Which kind of goes against the stereotype of young people, Lee, doesn't yeah. it? They're portrayed as being, you know, obsessed with succinct language, but yeah. you're finding otherwise. No, and they're sitting space. down writing substantial short stories and, inco- and accommodating texting, but not wanting too much of it. And deciding, you know, if you put it in italics, I don't know, personally, I find reading long, long tracts of italics really hard to do. And it's so unattractive looking. Mm. And you're kind of you're looking at the page sideways to try and read it. <laughs> And the kids feel the same way. They don't like it. So they try to, you know, minimise, use the texts well yeah. as part of the storytelling and minimise it. I don't tell them to do that. But I tell them virtually nothing. But given the space. They reach that conclusion themselves. I'm the one being, in that case, I was the one being educated, not them. Still so right. if you allow, you know, it's again, it's allow, if nobody's saying anything, just allow it for a little while to stay that way. It may well be that there's a prompt needed, yeah. but sometimes if you just allow a little bit more time, somebody's going to say something. Allow a silence to hang. Yeah. You talk about the um, surprise of the teachers when they, whether willingly or otherwise, step back. And you remind me of a teacher from Canada. He was asked at some international webinar, if there was one thing you could change in the system, what would it be? He's a practicing teacher, and he said if we stop making assumptions about each other, mm. that, you know, the teacher would assume, let's say, in that case, oh, the students can't write that, but yeah. step back, allow them to do it. Um, and I mean, you've also reminded me in terms of the whole kind of restriction or the, 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 the restricted space for creativity. I've seen my two older daughters who are in post-primary and they get stressed out about tests and exams at mm. Christmas and so on. And I'd say, your worth as a human being is unconditional. Mm. So you're talking about worth, yeah. fairness. Yeah. And I love you use the word brilliance, by the way. The fighting words has been a massive success, obviously, yeah. and you're looking really good forward to getting back into the physical space and to sit beside learners and mm. talk them through. Where, how hopeful are you, Roddy, about more integration of that? So, I mean, you talk about, I love their sense of adventure, and as adults, we all love going away from our, even yeah. like going to the pub, going to a different space, away yeah. from our home. Bringing it home, bringing it back to school, what yeah. more do we need to do to allow for that kind of creativity to flower, do you think? Well, I think, I don't know, fighting words, we've always seen ourselves as just outside the school railings. Say again? Outside the school railings. Yes. And I'm happy there, you know. I don't really want to go back into the school. Okay, okay. So I'm kind of happy outside the school railings. But on the other hand, we are involved now with teacher training. We are kind of, it's the whole, if we can convince teachers that they should feel confident about the whole openness thing, that they won't be able to say definitively how the, 40, the next 40 minutes are going to go, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that uh, planning in a way, it, it, planning is always necessary, of course, but it's a different kind of planning. Yes. Um, that I'm, yeah, I, I'm very hopeful. I think there's a lot of openness to it in the Department of Education, for example, and right. in the teacher training area, and um, right around the country. And we've got thousands of volunteers at this stage, people. And what I, the, the, the nicest thing for me, as an ex-teacher myself, is just how teachers have enjoyed it. We've had, we've had now writing groups of teachers because they wanted to do what they were watching their students do and have felt that urge, that vague urge that a lot of us carry around through our lives, I'd love to write something. And they felt the exact same way. And I'm sure it's why a lot of teachers of English are teachers of English because they, it, it, there's, there's the little itch yes. to be a writer of English, yeah. you know, or Irish, because we do Irish uh, classes oh, now as well. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, so it's it's so I'd be quite hopeful, you know, that I think the first thing if I was you know what would you do if you if if you were to ask me and if I had the opportunity to do anything at all if it was a small little thing to get it rolling I would I would, I would first of all change the name of the leaving cert, you know, uh, just get rid of it because um, it's so oppressive. It really is so oppressive. It's like living in a Stalinist country somehow or other, you know, it's all marching up to the leaving cert. If you could even change the name and start go backwards then. And, yeah. But I, do, I think it's... Um, and now, having gone through this last year and a half, it's all up for grabs because 
Life continues despite the lack of an exam last year and the hybrid version. And I know personally of one person who did really, really well because she had the opportunity to pick and choose. Yeah. And she, had the and she was allowed as a very near adult, if you like, to pick and choose. And I thought that was uh, the way it should be. The, it's, again, you're talking about the need for space. Mm-hmm. Um, and you spoke earlier about how the, the leavers will dominate the national headlines you know, almost uniquely. Not many other countries do that. <laughs> so the changes might be one thing, but the assumptions piece will come back insofar as people buy the newspapers that write those stories. Mm. So all our assumptions, as parents, as community leaders, as employers, yeah. we seem to be saying one thing, you want more creativity, more, and yet tacitly are acquiescing in that narrative, in that, that headlining. So th- th- there's a bigger ask for us all, for any parents, anybody else watching as well as teachers, we all need to kind of buy into this kind of, I'm almost buying probably the wrong word, but a greater openness to not knowing what the outcome will be mm. from what you're saying. Mm. If we're going to actually create the space for more creativity within the reins, almost take down the reins perhaps, but it's, mm-hmm. there's a big ask there, isn't there? For oh, it is, yeah. It's a big ask, but it's actually... It could be very exciting, you know. Mm-hmm. There, are people, there are people in whose interest it is to uh, keep the system exactly as it is. And we know who they are. I won't. I, won't. Yeah. <laughs> I will now name them. Uh, please do. <laughs> in, alpha, in alphabetical order. <laughs> At the known list. <laughs> but, you know, the vast majority of us don't... You know, the, the vast majority of us, as I suspect, know. And there, there, there is the hypocrisy, of course. You know, mm. if I look at the Irish Times website, there might be a, a major banner headline about homelessness, but when you see the most read articles, it's about a house in Sandyford that went for 2.7 million or yeah. something, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So there is that, you know, can you have, a, you know, can you, you have an obsession with property and actually feel mm. uh, that this is a problem, that homelessness is a, is, yeah, is yeah. a shaming problem that we have to solve? So there is that, and, you know... Um, but these hypocrisies are actually quite amusing in a way. And, uh, you know, so I do think there is that opportunity there. And I think, uh, um, yeah, it means, it, it, it means a major shift. In a way, I, I feel it's easy for me to speak because, I, you know, my, my children are adults now. So yeah. I, I, um, and my own teaching experience is, um, was, is black and white. The memory is yeah. <laughs> pre-colour. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite you that know, far ago. It was a hedge school. I was in, yeah. <laughs> but it, it seems to be, I know we've got a couple of minutes left, but the, the power of, of the written word, and Margaret Atwood talks about the, the, uh, word after word after word is power. Mm. And when you stop to read a book and it makes you think about life, I mean, those hypocrisies, those contradictions you talk about, that we, all of us in one way probably acquiesce to it at the very least. But the power of creative, the creative word and the created word may help us step back from those hypocrisy and those contradictions mm. if you re-examine them. And the, there's one question I'm going to call up, but the one question I definitely ask before we finish. The one came in from Conor Powers, said, what would 90s Ireland have been without Roddy Doyle and the Barrytown trilogy? And, and I, I, I kind of shiver to think of that because I would have had that moment in, in the Coliseum Cinema in Carlo. <laughs> but the, in terms of the power of the written word, this book I have here beside me was written by Ursula Le Guin. Mm. It's the Earthsea trilogy, a fantasy novel. But it's the first book I read for the second time. I was going having a particularly stressful period in my life, whatever the reasons were, and a good friend said to me, what book did you like reading when you were growing up? Mm. And I said, this is a book that was in Hodges Figgis. I would go, before I got my book token, regularly to Hodges Figgis, walk up, cradle the book in my hands, yeah. leave it back. If you were to read a book you love for the second time tomorrow, next week, what would that book be and why? Um, well, I actually, a lot of the books I love... I've read four and five times, you know. At Swim Two Birds, Flan O'Brien, I read it every couple of years. Uh, not, I don't have it in my diary, I must read Flan. Yeah. I just have the urge to go and look at it again. And I'm, I don't, I'm not good at just dipping into a book. I, I, it's almost, you know, even when I was, you know, using the phone book, the urge to start at the end. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't joking earlier on, were you? <laughs> So I prefer to read the whole thing, just in a way, because it, I kind of discovered that book with other people when I was 16, and it, it, uh, it, it, it lit up uh, a world of possibility that, you know, the Dublin accent on paper could be funny, that you could do absurd things like having cowboys in Ring's End, you know, and 
it's just so, and three beginnings and three endings to a novel, it just seemed to throw out all the rules and yet it's a very coherent, brilliant piece of work and I, I still think that. So I read it a lot. There's one book, and I, I, I reread Dickens all the time, you know, I just love Dickens, but there's one book called Wise Blood by Flannery O'Connor that, a great film directed by John Huston, not very well known, but it's okay. a great, great film. But the book is glorious. It's, it's an amazing, dark book set in the Deep South. And uh, I, re- I bought it again. I don't know what happened to it. So, so many moving from bedsit to bedsit mm. and stuff. It, it, uh, I lost it. But I, re- I bought it recently and I'm kind of putting it aside and half nervous about it because I don't know if I'll like it as much as I liked it the first time. I, had, I started reading Catch-22 again a few years back and I couldn't get, it, I couldn't get past the first few pages. Okay. And it's, not, it's, it's a brilliant book, but I think you have to be a young person to really appreciate I suspect. Okay. And I just didn't get it, you know. And I felt, ugh. But another one, uh, uh, E.L. Doctorow's book, um, Ragtime, amazing novel. And again, an eye-opener for me, a head-opener in many ways. The way he depicts music, you can see the notes in the air, the mixture of real historical figures and fictional figures, the simplicity of the language. There isn't one word that would give you pause and think, what does he mean? The simplicity, all the words, you know, maybe 19 or 20 when I read it, all the words were in my head there already to be used. And I remember thinking that, consciously thinking in a way, well, if he can do this, I can do something. Do you know what I mean? And I read it recently, and it's still brilliant, you know. So I've reread a lot of stuff, but the one, Wise Blood, I'm looking forward to, but a bit nervous of it. So um, sometimes you shouldn't revisit your, you know. <laughs> but anyway, I will give it a go. I'll let you know. Do, do, please, Roddy. Roddy, unfortunately, we are out of time. There's other questions, um, other questions coming in, but we have to, we have to uh, call at this stage. I want to thank you so much. No, it's a pleasure. For, uh, I think, what has been, in the best possible way, a meandering conversation. And we've yeah. covered so many different spaces. And I do want to thank you again for that night in the Coliseum Cinema in the Carlo. <laughs> Watching the commitments, it, it was a magical moment. No. So um, it has been an absolute delight chatting thank with you, you today. Thank you.